0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet.
1: Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before we get started, we want to just share something exciting we've been cooking up because, you know, sometimes we want to just take a deeper dive on some of these things. So, Pete, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about it? Right. Well, this fall in September, we are
0: launching a live course, a four-week live course on what is God like, which is sort of a big question that people of faith are asking really all the time. And of course, we say, well, let's go to the Bible and find out. Well, that's just it. The Bible is diverse, it's ambiguous, it's very ancient. It's a bit messy, but we're going to look at some passages in the Bible that really help us understand something of what God is like.
1: So, if this sounds interesting to you, it's something that it you, yeah. If, what do it, you mean
0: if this sounds interesting, if
1: you're listening to this podcast and that doesn't sound interesting, your wires are getting crossed, exactly for sure. Yes, yeah. but just go to the dot front slash course, and you can get more information about it. Learn, don't take our word for it. Learn more about it. Read up on it, and, right? And if it is interesting and you want to sign up, then do. And if you don't, and we would love what to do have we care? You? you know, oh, I care. I care. Oh, deeply. you care. I care too. De- because these are right. good people. Well, Pete's the one that's going to be teaching the course, so he should care. Yeah, that's true. good. Got it. Excellent. So head there. Bible I am? for normal. I'm teaching it? You're teaching oh, gosh. it. Yeah, okay. I forgot to mention that detail. Oof. The Bible for Normal People dot com front slash course. We hope to see you there.
0: Now for today's podcast, our topic is when and why the Bible was written. And our guest is Bill Schneiderwind, who is a professor of Biblical Studies. And Northwest Semitic Languages at UCLA, and that's just a fancy way of saying languages around the Old Testament period, the languages other people spoke. But he's he's a great guy. He's an old friend of mine, and he's just a wonderful, careful scholar, and he writes in a really accessible manner. So, So, some books you might be interested in when we're done with the podcast are How the Bible Became a Book which is some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. The Word of God in transition, which is a similar theme as the first one. And then another one, the social history of Hebrew, which sounds pretty geeky because it probably is, but all languages and all cultures have a social context and you can't get away from those things.
1: Yeah. So, it was a a fascinating conversation talking about why and when. What I appreciated is he resisted the simple answers. And he just showed how rich of a topic this is, how multifaceted, how we can't ask when it was written without asking why it was written. And those go hand in hand. And just a really brilliant guy. I mean, he's, he's name dropping all kinds of pharaohs and kings and time yeah. periods and smart guy.
0: It's his day job, you know, that's what he does. But, you know, the, the question of who wrote the Bible, which is sort of more of a modern kind of question to ask, who wrote the Bible? But for, for Bill and for, for most of biblical scholarship, the who is a very difficult thing to answer, but you can put pieces together about when something was written, and then why, the circumstances around which they were written. And that's just, it's a fascinating idea to think about how there wasn't a Bible at the beginning, and it and the, these written stories, they developed for reasons, some of which are, you know, you'll pick up from, from the podcast, some of which are political reasons and and having to do with nations and empires and things like that.
1: Well, so, this is one of the first times, not the first, but one of the first times we're delving into this topic of kind of where did the Bible come from, and I'm sure it won't be the last time we talk Absolutely about this. Absolutely not. All right, let's get into it.
2: Ancient Israel was fundamentally an oral culture. All the Israelites, how are they going to learn the wondrous deeds of God? They're not going to learn it by reading texts. They're going to learn it through stories. How do all the people learn about God? And they le- fundamentally learn about God through oral tradition, through fathers and mothers telling stories to their sons and daughters. You tell the stories of God's deeds. You don't read the stories of God's deeds.
1: Well, welcome, Bill. Thanks for being on the podcast. It's great
2: to be here. It's nice to be chatting with you and Pete.
1: Excellent. So, Pete, what are we going to talk about today? What do you want to talk about? The weather in Los Angeles. How's the weather, Bill?
2: It's 75 and sunny and has been for pretty much as long as I can remember. The past 40 years. Okay, enough
1: of that. We're not going to talk about that anymore because it's been raining here for like a month straight. So, on to something else. Okay, listen,
0: Bill, here's the, the question for today. And I think maybe you would agree it's sort of been the question generally of biblical scholarship of the whole modern period, which is, when was the Bible written? And why was it written? And what is Bible anyway? And all those kinds of questions. And it's it's a question that I get an awful lot from people who are discovering sort of new ways of thinking about this Bible that they were raised with, and they're realizing just from reading it that it's a lot more complicated than they were led on to believe. So, I mean, have you in yourself, have you had any sort of a movement in your life, a transition from like certain ways of thinking about the Bible to moving to other ways of thinking, or as has always been sort of a natural thing for you?
2: Um, I didn't really grow up in a conservative religious tradition, so that I was taught to think, oh, this is the way you have to think about the Bible, I came to religious faith late in high school and went to college, and I didn't go to a con- really conservative school. I went to a Quaker school. So I didn't really have like these dogmatic things that I had to think about. So I didn't have this major transition. I kind of realized that people were going t- through these transitions when I encountered other students.
0: Yeah, so so you didn't really have that transition, but you're always interested in the Bible, I guess. And, and you've done a lot of thinking about, like, these questions that are before us, like, you know, when was the Bible written and why? So, maybe we can start with that first question, when was it written? And maybe that's even a bad question.
2: I mean, I like the question, you know, when was the Bible written? But, of course, it's really intertwined with why it was written. I okay. Mean, one of the things that I have been deeply impressed upon is... You know, a lot of my studies are in Israel doing archaeology, uh, reading inscriptions, getting to know the people, as one of my teachers used to say, you know, reading the Bible with my feet on the ground and thinking very practically about the the Bible as scripture and as a book. and. The more I started reading the Bible and, and studying the historical backgrounds, the more I realized that you know writing was not a natural thing to the ancient Israelites. It's not like every guy on the street had a Bible and he was reading his Bible. I mean, writing was an unusual thing. It was an expensive thing in uh, ancient cultures. Writing was mostly done by elites in the culture. And so ancient Israel, King David, for example, right? He's a shepherd, right? You know, how much she- how much do shepherds, you know, read and write, uh, generally speaking? You know, how much do farmers, how much do shepherds read and write? And you realize early Israel is an agricultural society. It's a non, largely non-urban society. It's a society where reading and writing weren't really naturally part of what was going on. So then, the question is, you know, when did people start to write the Bible? If you're, you know, you living in a culture where writing isn't really important, or or central to the culture, how do they start, you know, writing the Bible? When do they start writing the the Bible in this kind of culture? So these are the kind of questions that sort of uh, consumed me over the last couple decades as a scholar. It's, it's pretty clear that, you know, when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, you know, they're not wandering around carrying a bunch of books and every night uh, taking out the scrolls and, and reading them over the campfire. Rather, they're telling stories, you know, they're singing songs. I mean, actually, this is what Psalms is. You have historical Psalms, you know, you have stories in the Bible. And when um, Proverbs... Or Psalms talk about passing on their faith. They're talking about, you know, tell these things to your children. You know, sing of the great deeds of the Lord. They're not saying, you know, go in your study and read your Bible, right? Texts aren't central to the communication of the religious tradition of ancient Israel.
0: So what what you're saying then Bill is that maybe we should think in terms of the Bible actually began as an oral what's the right word an oral text if that's not an oxymoron but something that's communicated orally but then transitioned eventually to something written.
2: Yeah, I mean I think that it's not that the Bible has to be oral at all the time, but what's true is that ancient Israel was fundamentally an oral culture. So, certainly, let's say Moses, let's, let's take a, an example. Let's say the hypothetical Moses, I'm sure he could write. You know, that's not a problem whether Moses could write or whether Moses was literate or not literate. The problem is that all the Israelites, how are they going to learn, you know, the wondrous deeds of God? They're not going to learn it by reading texts. They're going to learn it through stories. So, in the same thing, we could go to the period of like David and Solomon. David and Solomon have scribes. They're writing. It's not a question of whether there's writing and writing exists, it's a question of how do all the people learn about God? And they le- fundamentally learn about God through oral tradition, through fathers and mothers telling stories to their sons and daughters, to going to, you know, religious context, whether it's Sukkot, you know, Feast of Tabernacles, or it's Passover, and you you tell the stories of God's deeds. You don't read the stories of God's deeds. And at a certain point in history, you know, the text is going to be central to the religious tradition, But that's a development that comes later, and I would say it's an uneasy development in terms of the uh, tradition. There's always a a tension between the oral teacher and the telling of the gospel, even in the New Testament, and the written text as two different ways of conveying authority.
1: Right. You, you mentioned, Bill, some of these transitions that would have happened. We're going from oral more to written and these sorts of things. Maybe can can you give us a little concrete context for years or dates or times, or maybe give us a little sense of when the Bible kind of goes through these transitions?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few clues in the Bible about these major transitions. One of the texts that I really like is Proverbs 25.1, where it says, The men of Hezekiah collected the Proverbs of Solomon, right? The word there in Hebrew is really kind of a difficult term, but it means something like they collected, they edited. But the point is that it's the men of Hezekiah, that, so, that it is sometime in the late 8th century, who are collecting the Proverbs of Solomon from a couple centuries earlier. That tells you something about the distance between the Proverbs themselves as a tradition, and the writing of the text. Another really central text for me is um, the finding of the book in 2 Kings 22 and 23. So you have this story about, in the time of Josiah, that somehow the book, quote-unquote, or the Torah, gets lost. And, you know, they go into the temple, they find this book, and they're like, oh my God, you know, I I found the book. I mean, it's like... what? How'd you lose this thing, right? Yeah, right? And we've been doing it wrong all this long. Where was it? Like, what you've been doing for the last three centuries, right? Um, but suddenly they find this book and they're like, oh, let's read it. Oh, my God, you know, look what's in this book, right? <laughs> it's a, it's, It's really kind of an amazing thing when you think about it. And then they, when they read the book, you know, then you have this whole religious reform, Josianic re- religious reform, that seems to be based on the book of Deuteronomy, the, the statutes in the book of Deuteronomy. You have centralization of religious worship by Josiah, the, you know, removing of idols and and various and sundry other things, all precipitated by the reading of a book. And this is the first time that. The reading of the book is the central thing to religious life. In earlier episodes, like if you look at like you know one of the things that's really striking to me about let's say the giving of law on Mount Sinai, is that. You know, it's not like in Exodus 19, God gives Israel a book. You know, God speaks to Israel on the mountain. He speaks to Moses on the mountain. And it's all, he hears it. And, or even the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy says, these are the words that Moses spoke to Israel. Not that these are the words that Moses wrote to Israel. Now, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it's going to get around to, to having these words written down but the whole thing is cast as an oral thing in biblical literature until we get to this moment in the Josianic period. And it's also mirrored by what we see in the inscriptional record, I would say, as well. So, if you look at early Israel, let's say the 12th, 11th, 10th century, 9th century, there are very few inscriptions. I mean, there are inscriptions. There's more than enough Inscriptions to know that yeah, people could read and write. They're beginning to do records, you know. But if you look at the number of inscriptions, it's a relatively small uh, number of inscriptions. But when you get to the late eighth century, the seventh century, the early sixth century, you have just a whole plethora of inscriptions. You got you also have like thousands of seal impressions of documents that are lost, but we still have like the seals that they put on the documents. Uh, we call them bull. I mean, like
0: the royal seals.
2: No, no, no. I'm thinking about like we don't really do it anymore, but but we but some people do. Like, they'll write a letter, right, and on the back they'll drop a little wax, and then they'll seal there with some special seal uh, if you want to do something really fancy, right? But in antiquity, you know, you would sign a document and you would have your own seal, and you would take you would have clay, and you would you know seal the document with this little clay. Uh, impression with your seal in it, and you know, just recently the, in in the news, there were was the so-called seal of Isaiah the prophet, but also a seal of King Hezekiah. But there are lots and lots and lots and lots of these seals that have been that have been published. Unfortunately, all the documents get burned up. So if they you know destroy the city of Jerusalem, you know you have an archive of you know a hundred seals. Let's say, for example. And the, the impressions are, are all there. They get burned and essentially hardened in the fire. And, of course, all the documents get burned. They, they become you know, the kindling for the fire. And so we don't have all the, the documents. And, you know, unfortunately for ancient Israel, a lot of the really great documents, important documents, were probably written on parchment, um, that is leather, you know, uh, treated leather, or, or uh, papyrus. And uh, very few of the documents were written in, uh, in things that are non-perishable materials. But we do have them, you know. So, like, at a place like Arad, the city of Arad, about 20, 25 miles south of Jerusalem, they found over a hundred of what we call ostraca. They're, like, pottery shards and for just writing letters and receipts and things like that at a city called Lachish. You know, we found in the gate area a bunch of letters, including some letters that uh, there's a letter called the letter of the literate soldier, which is really one of my favorites of that uh, corpus of letters, because it's a letter written from a senior officer to a junior officer, and the junior officer receives the letter, and apparently the senior officer had accused him of not being able to read and write. And he said, you know, told him to go get a scribe. And the junior officer writes back and says, I'm cut to the heart at this notion that I can't read. You know, nobody ever called a scribe for me. I've never needed a scribe. When was this written, Bill? This was written around 600 BCE. Okay. So it's, you know, written at the very end of the Judean monarchy when writing is flourishing. And the interesting thing about the letter is that it shows that literacy is spreading to various classes of society. So this is a junior officer in the army, and he's offended, right, by the idea that he can't read and write, which is really a remarkable transition in society. It tells you that now reading and writing has become a value in the society. And that's a a really critical transition for the Bible becoming, or biblical text becoming authoritative, right?
1: And, and that sounds like it happened it happened rather quickly, is that right? Like Within a hundred years or two hundred years, you go from not many people being able to read and write to this kind of wildfire spreading of literacy to different classes and different people. Would that be fair to say?
2: Yeah, it is a relatively short period of time. It probably begins in the late 8th century BC. That's Hezekiah you
0: mentioned yeah, before, Yeah, this is right? in uh, King Hezekiah's time. With Proverbs time. 25. So, what's happening? Like, what... This is getting to the why question, right? So, what, why? <laughs> what, what's going on?
2: Yeah, there are a variety of things that are going on. I mean, this is the beginning of the rise of the Assyrian Empire. You know, we know Tiglath-Pileser comes, you know, the king of Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom, uh, and then uh, or for, makes the first of the campaigns and the exiles of the northern kingdom, and then probably or comes and and destroys the rest of the northern kingdom by 722-721 BC. But in general, when archaeologists look around what's going on uh, the Near East under the, in the rise of the Assyrian Empires, you have the creation of this first really great empire. And throughout the empire, this empire creates things like globalization and urbanization. So, People move out of small villages. They don't want to live in an unwalled village, right? The empire needs tribute. They need, you know, goods and services. So, part of that what urbanization creates is more of a stratification of 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 society. Writing becomes much more important in the administration of the empire, right? It's no longer kind of a local thing, and then you see this reflected in Judah on a local level. So. Pete, you were giving one of the examples of the royal seal impressions. These are these seal impressions we find on on these large storage jars. We find hundreds of them throughout Judah, and they all say Lamelech, which means belonging to the king, and it has a nice uh, either two- or four-winged emblem, a royal emblem, and then it has the names of four different cities in Judah that seem to be the administrative centers for this. And what it shows you is, you know, you've got a government bureaucracy. And critical to this development of government bureaucracy is writing. Writing is a really important thing to this. And actually, you know, the phenomena of, of writing in libraries is a general Near Eastern concept that's happening. So one of the most famous libraries of the ancient world, of course, is the Library of Ashurbanipal which actually was started King Ashurbanipal Paul in Assyria, in Nineveh, but that was actually founded by Sennacherib in the late 8th century. And we also know, in a much more sketchy way, that in Egypt at the same time, Pharaoh Shabaka is also collecting writings, traditional writings of early Egypt into our sort of a royal archive. So you have this sort of general tradition in the ancient Near East of creating libraries. And Hezekiah, the the verse in Proverbs 21 of Hezekiah doing this, it also sort of fits into that situation. So you have this perfect kind of confluence of various different things that are going on in the late 8th century that are elevating the role of writing as an element in society. You have the emergence of an empire, You have globalization, you've got urbanization, stratification of society, and writing becomes a much more significant part of what's going on, on in society at, at this time in the late 8th century. And then it just sort of develops or snowballs from that, by, so that by the end of the 7th century in a, in a letter at Lachish you can get a junior officer offended at the notion that he would be accused of being illiterate, or you can have a, a religious reform like Josiah's religious reform, which is now based on on the finding of a book and the prescriptions of a book
0: pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from McDonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar forty nine. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
1: Ba ba So let me summarize a little bit what I what I think I'm hearing you say, Bill is all the, these factors, this globalization, because we have the rise of the Assyrian Empire, we have these other urbanization, we have the, the rise of these libraries, we're, we're putting more written documents in these in these government bureaucracies, these libraries that the government owns. That gives us all this evidence to say that before the 8th century, writing in the uh, ancient Near East would not have been all that prominent. So, it's, it's very unlikely that documents would have been widespread or, or really written down from our Bible. We wouldn't have a lot of that. But with these factors here, we start to see them being written down more and more and collected and archived and the spread of literacy so that we can now pass along information by written document rather than oral. And so, that's kind of where we are is before the 8th century, wouldn't have a lot of uh, our current Bible, kind of what we think of as the Bible, wouldn't have been written down necessarily before then. And then there would have been this, this outburst of a lot of writing down, collecting, getting all these oral traditions in a, in a, in a written form around that 8th century, 7th century timeframe. Is that fair to say?
2: That's a nice summary, you know, and we could add other things about the Bible. When you study biblical texts, one of the things that's really striking is that a large part of the Bible is really written, I would say, in the language of the late Judean monarchy. So it's like our Bibles today. You know, you can take out a King James Bible, right? And you can start reading it, and you can say, well, this is not 21st century American English. This is like language from a few centuries earlier. And the same thing is true of our Bible. You know, when we read the Bible, there's a certain Hebrew that we find in the Bible. Let's say it's the book of Kings, or it's the book of Isaiah, or even the book of Genesis, or the book of Proverbs. It's pretty uniformly the language of the late Judean monarchy. It's not usually the language that we know about from the time of Moses or even King David. And it's also not generally the the language we know of from a later period, like the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Although if you go to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah or the book of Chronicles or books that we know were written in the post exilic period, they're written in an updated or different register of Hebrew, period of Hebrew. So, what that tells me is that most of the biblical texts are written in the language of and collected in the time between Hezekiah and Isaiah and the time of Josiah and the prophet Jeremiah.
0: A couple hundred years then, right, Bill?
2: There are texts that are earlier, you know, so, so there are certainly texts like, let's say, for example, in Exodus 15, you know, you have this a liturgy, the Song of the Sea, or the Song of Moses, or, you know, the texts like Deuteronomy 32, 33, you know, uh, Songs of Moses that are, or In the book of Judges, Judges chapter 5, you have this early northern Hebrew poem that's also archaic. So, there are vestiges of writing from the earlier time.
0: Hey, normal people, Pete here. Just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee, you'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So, thank you to Ted Cole, James White, Scott Smith, Darlene Sinclair, Jonathan Beck, Marilyn Johnson, Daniel Wesley, Darren McKenna, Sharon Rowland, and Dee Forrest. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now, back to the podcast. Well, Bill, let me, how early? I mean, you, you've just mentioned a bunch of texts that biblical scholars typically think are, quote, early texts. How early are we talking about, which sort of gets into a question I wanted to ask you of how old is Hebrew? Because that's sort of would delimit when the Bible was written?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, this is a really tough question because we're dating things in a relative manner. But, I mean, I would date these early biblical texts between the 12th and the 10th century BCE. So, before David. Yeah, so, so before David or up until the time of David. And the, the great thing about liturgy is that it tends to preserve, you know, archaic forms. If you have a poem, right you know you just can't change the poem if you if there's something you say you know in uh, various religious context whether it's you know for a church service or a synagogue service you have to use the forms and those forms will be very conservative
0: so those poems are like Exodus 15 and Judges 5 right and a few other texts but the books of kings are written in a different style or form of Hebrew
2: they're written in a different style or form of Hebrew and, and that Hebrew largely uh, essentially dates to the late Judean monarchy so the, like, let's say the 7th generation the 7th century BC, early 6th century BC, that time period, it parallels really nicely with the inscriptional evidence in terms of the Hebrew and the inscriptional evidence that we have from from that time period.
0: And by inscriptional, Bill, you mean texts outside of the Bible written on stone or clay? or
2: Yeah, written on stone. Usually, I mean... Most of it's written on clay. Most of the examples are ostraca, that is, these potsherds, and they're written with ink on potsherds. Most of it's really mundane, kind of occasionally, you know, a lot of receipts and things like that, but sometimes letters. So that's another kind of indicator of when the Bible is written. Now it doesn't necessarily mean that, say, you know, a text couldn't be earlier. So for let me give you an example. Like the book of Isaiah that we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the Great Isaiah Scroll, a lot of people will know about this, you know, it's the long one of the longest scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's actually written in an updated Hebrew. So it's written in a Hebrew of the time of the 1st century BC, not the 7th century BC. The Masoretic text of the book of Isaiah, of course, is written in something that is more akin to the 7th century BC. So... You can take a book, like the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and update it to a later register. Just like you can take the Bible, you can take your King James Bible and do a retranslation and have the New King James, right? But the point is here that I can tell the difference between the New King James and the Old King James, right? They reflect English language at different stages. And the same thing is true of the Bible. For the most part, the largest part of the Bible, the Pentateuch, what we call the deuteronomistic history which is you know Joshua Judges 1st and 2nd Samuel 1st and 2nd Kings this is all written in the Hebrew of the late Judean monarchy of the 7th century BC the prophetic books you know Isaiah Jeremiah Micah Hosea this is all written in language that's typical of the late 8th to 7th century BC actually one in one way it kind of Undoes, I would say, the language argument really undoes one of I would call the problems of Pentateuchal criticism in the in scholarship. That is to say, the so-called Priestly document, right, which is the essentially it's like, especially the books of Leviticus and Numbers in the he, in the Hebrew Bible. Scholars have often thought, following Velhausen, Julius Velhausen, that this was a text that dated to the post-exilic period, that it was the sort of the latest example. So. Of, of the Bible, of the development of the Pentateuch. But when you look at the priestly documents in the Bible, they're all written in pre-exilic Hebrew. They're all written in the language of the you know, late 8th and 7th century BC. They're not written in the language of Ezra and Nehemiah. Like, they're not written in Hebrew of the 4th century BC that we would expect they don't have Persian loan words in them. They don't have all the Aramaic loan words and Aramaisms that are typical of the language of the later period. So for me, there are parts of the Bible then uh, that have to be much earlier than, let's say, critical scholarship of the last generation, and even especially some European critical scholarship would date them. I mean, I just think there's just absolutely no way to date these things to uh, to that late a period. So that what it really means for me is that there's a flourishing of the Bible and biblical literature in the late 8th century and 7th century BC that involves collecting old literature and maybe updating some of it, writing new literature, and the elevation of this literature as being important for uh, culture in general. Now, if I'm right, and there really is this major resistance to, uh, or or change in the culture, right, from a, a largely oral culture to a, a culture where texts are more important, then there should be resistance to this, right? And I would say one of the great examples of this is a passage I absolutely love from The book of Jeremiah, chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. You know, and to to paraphrase, in uh, verse 7, it says, you know, the birds, they know their customs, but my people don't know the custom of the Lord. And then verse 8 says, because the lying pen of the scribes has turned the Torah, or the law, into a lie. It's a really strange verse, right? Somehow Torah, which in Hebrew means teaching, which we usually translate as law because of the Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew word Torah as nomos. Because the lying pen of the scribes turned the Torah into a lie. And then the next verse, verse 9, says, "...the wise shall be put to shame." Because they rejected the Devar Adonai, which in Hebrew means the word of God. Uh, The expression the word of God or the word of the Lord in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible is an expression that only really applies to the prophetic word. So the word of the Lord came to the prophet Isaiah and he said such and such, right? Or the word as fulfilled according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah and so on and so forth. Whenever you find the expression the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, right? It's God's speech. So you get bookend in, in Jeremiah chapter eight verses seven through nine. On the one hand, this notion of Israel rejecting custom or tradition, and on the other hand, Israel rejecting the Devara and I, the, the word of the Lord, or the Word of God. And then in the middle, you get the explanation of how they did that. Jeremiah says they turned the Torah, they turned teaching. The Hebrew word Torah really means teaching. They turned teaching the lying pen of the scribe turned teaching into a text. So I think in Jeremiah, there's another passage in Jeremiah chapter 3 where Jeremiah critiques the religious reforms of uh, Josiah because he says they're not genuine. And of course, the religious reforms of Jeremiah were based on the reading of a book and the reaction to a book. So I actually think that in, in Jeremiah, the prophet and the prophetic voice are in some ways reacting to it being challenged by the rise of scripture as an authority in a society. So rather than teaching and Torah and oral tradition, suddenly the text is going to have a rising authority. And there's this kind of uneasy tension with this transition in the society between The authority of the teacher, the authority of oral tradition, the authority of your mom and your dad telling you stories, and the authority of a text being central to the religious tradition.
1: That's fascinating. So, would you say then, given that text in Jeremiah, would that have been indicative of perhaps the sense that what was authoritative was the oral tradition? And that this written tradition is somehow corrupting the, the more pure Devar Adonai, or the, the word of the Lord, at least in the prophetic instances. Would that be? Yeah, that? I mean,
2: the point is that it's not a straight and easy transition, you know? And you're right. going to have this long arc of a tradition. You could say that it finally ends when Martin Luther in the Christian tradition says, sola scriptura, right? That's the the, the end of it, right? When, you know, scripture alone… But you see it in the New Testament too, and in, in a variety of different ways in Christian tradition. You see it in different Jewish groups of the Second Temple period, the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, probably on one hand, with the emphasis on reading and study of texts. The Sadducees also probably on one end with the emphasis on the Torah or the Pentateuch as being authoritative. And then on the other hand, you had the Pharisees who believed in the primacy of the oral tradition. They didn't reject the text, but the oral tradition was much more central. In early Christianity, you find like Paul, for example, talking about the letter kills, but the the spirit gives life, right? So you got this via vox, you know, the living voice being uh, important. Or in the New Testament, you have this notion of the gospel, right? The gospel isn't a text that you read, but it's the thing that you essentially share uh, and preach. And you have it, ironically, in, let's say, the, the gospel of John. Because, you know, the gospel of John begins with, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word is this person, not a text. And then the book of John sort of ends by, in some ways, undermining itself By saying, you know, if everything that Jesus did were written down, then um, there wouldn't be books to contain it. In other words, I've written you a book, but, you know, it's just a fragment of, you know, the living word of God who I'm trying to communicate about. Those texts in the New Testament are some of the reflection of some of the continuing kind of dialogue that was going on in early Christianity, more generally in early Judaism, among different. Jewish groups about the authority of the text in the community versus the authority of oral tradition, of the teacher, of custom, and that dialogue or tension exists over a long period of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's in the Bible itself, which I think is it's in the a fascinating Bible itself, point yes. to bring out. Not not just Deuteronomy, but, you know, the reading of Torah in the post-exilic period in Nehemiah. It's, it's being read,
2: right? <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that's a great example. So, in Nehemiah chapter 8, you have this fantastic story, I would say, of the elevation of the text, um, because it's a very elaborate reading ceremony. I mean, you have a reading ceremony kind of like it in the passage in Josiah, but in, in Nehemiah, it really elevates. They build a platform for them to go, and then they go up in this kind of very long description, they go up there, they open the scroll, they read it to everyone, they sit there for hours on end, listening to the Torah being read with explanation. So you have in that passage, I think, an attempt to elevate the significance of, uh, of the text in the Bible. And, it's, and I would say in terms of the biblical arc in the Old Testament, that's kind of the end point of the biblical arc. It also brings us to sort of what I would call one of the other really interesting questions. You know, first the, the first question I kind of asked, you know, when I started doing this stuff is, is like, why was the Bible written at all? I mean, you have an oral culture. There's really no reason for them to, you know, for people to read and write, and apart from a few scribes in the palace or the temple, text shouldn't be important. But you have transitions in the culture where writing does become important. But then the question is, why should it become scripture? So, writing is important for the empire, right? You know, or writing is important for administration or government. Why should it become important for religion? And that's a secondary transition in the Bible.
0: Do you have an answer for that?
2: I've been working on an answer. I think there are certain kinds of things that are really interesting in, in scripture. One of the things is, in the book of Deuteronomy, for example, they use the, the form of a treaty, a Neo-Assyrian treaty, right, that ends with blessings and curses. Now, the, the important thing about that is a treaty in a Neo-Assyrian context was something that was written. Now, it was something that was written out on tablets. It was read before in a ritual way. And then when, after it was, it was written, the words were authoritative, right? And the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' speech, ends with the blessings of the curses for someone who doesn't follow the words, well, in this case, that were spoken, but they were also written. There's a ritual at the end of Moses' speech in Deuteronomy 27, where Moses says to the Israelites, Hey, you know, take these, when you cross over to the land of the Jordan, take everything I've said, you know, and write it down on, you know, these monuments on the other side of the Jordan to remember what I said. So you take a certain kind of ceremony in which writing was, was integral to the ceremony, and you, that becomes a way of moving or elevating the authority of the text in, in a community. So I think Deuteronomy purposely uses the form of the treaty because as a way of creating the authority of the text from oral to written. I think there are other, you know, vehicles in which Scripture also uses to try to elevate the notion of the text. One of them is the giving of the Ten Commandments, at least according to Deuteronomy. You remember in Exodus 24, God calls Moses up to the mountain and he gives him two tablets or he gives him tablets of stone that are written by the finger of God, right? So there's a certain authority in a text if it's written by the finger of God. Now, there's a certain limitation to it as well, because according to Deuteronomy, it's only the Ten Commandments that seem to be written by the finger of God. But there's certainly... The the notion of of God himself writing things creates a a certain kind of authority. We, uh, religious traditions, I think, sometimes try have extended this notion of divine writing to all of the Bible. In the Bible itself... It was localized to the Ten Commandments that were written by the very etzba Elohim, by the finger of God. But already in the Second Temple period, you see this kind of development of the importance of divine writing uh, for expressing authority. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls that I really like is a text. It's called, um, it, It's the, the number It doesn't really matter, it's 4Q177. But in the beginning of the text, it says, Everything is written on the tablets. All, everything that's important is written on the tablets. And then it's going to go on and talk about two different Torahs that are, were apparently, it's apparently referring to. So it, it, it extends the notion of the tablets, which were written by the finger of God, to the entire Torah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And probably two different Torahs, I think it's talking about our Pentateuch, and the second Torah is probably the Book of Jubilees, which some Jews in the Second Temple Period accepted, but most didn't. But the important thing is, you know, using the vehicle of the tablets written by the finger of God as a way of extending the authority of the divine writing to all of Scripture, or at least all of the Pentateuch as well as a second Torah for them, the Book of Jubilees. Well, Bill,
0: let's, I mean, get back to that question, though, because I'm still wondering why do that, with scripture. You can see why with, let's say, treaties and with, you know, globalization and the rise of this empire thinking, why that kind of communication is important. Why does this develop, especially like during and after the exile? And I mean, one explanation that I've heard that sounds plausible to me, and I'd like to know what you think about it, is, you know, the the greater distance you have from the good old days, from the golden years. It's a way of connecting to that past in some fixed way. It's, it's a way of bringing that past into the present situation, and that survives better with books.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is one of the explanations. I mean, one of the early explanations for even for the invention of writing, there are a variety of different ones in different places, but one of the Akkadian cuneiform traditions says, you know, writing was invented because, you know, when you were sending letters back and forth, you know, people couldn't remember what was in the oral message. So in order for the message to be told precisely, you know, you had it written down. You know, the other thing, of course, that you mentioned, so that, you know, writing, there is this kind of idea that writing preserves things more accurately. You know, the, the flip side of that is, is very, uh, this quote from Plato That I really love where Plato says, you know, hey, you know, the problem with writing is and written text is, if you ask a written text what it means, it just goes on telling you the same thing over and over again, right? It never changes. It's just the same thing. Whereas if you ask your teacher, you know, what a text means, they have an explanation. But a text never explains itself. You know, it's just there. So, you know, there's a sort of plus and minuses in text for that reason, but there's also the, the Golden Age principle, which is certainly true. I, this is one of the reasons I l- really love Woody Allen's movie, you know, Midnight in Paris. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but you have, it's sort of exploring this Golden Age principle and sort of the fallacy of the Golden Age. But already, you, know, you see it in the book of Proverbs, right? When Proverbs 25.1 says that you know, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, that is, the Proverbs of the Golden Age of Solomon that the men of Hezekiah collected. So already it's looking back to the period of David and Solomon as sort of a golden age and sort of collecting this. The same thing's going in the library of Ashurbanipal in in Cuneiform Library in Nineveh. You know, they're collecting the Enuma Elish or the Epic of Gilgamesh or all the writings that, that were considered of the golden age. And the same thing is going on in Egypt with Pharaoh Shabaka. They're collecting, you know, writings of the past, because they're sort of the golden age of of Israel. And, you know, Ezra Nehemiah is probably doing the same thing. I mean, according to Jewish tradition, you know, Ezra is the person who collected the Pentateuch or codified the Pentateuch. There's also a tradition in the book of Maccabees that Nehemiah built a library in Jerusalem, you know, collecting the sacred works of early Israel. So you have in both of those kind of traditions, you know, this notion of the past and collecting works of the past. And uh, when you go into the Second Temple period, you know, with uh, works like the Pseudepigrapha, right? Whether it's the Book of Enoch, what uh, a Fourth Ezra or Baruch, or these different works, they're casting themselves as sort of looking at the past and and idealizing the past and the previous generations. So there is a certain kind of Golden age mentality. I don't think, however, that it's like something specific to the Second Temple period. So this is my point, like of, of looking back to, let's say, the passage in Proverbs about um, Hezekiah, or even the finding of the book. You know, the book is something that's the golden age. But more generally, if you look in in Akkadian uh, cuneiform, the history of cuneiform Mesopotamian literature, there's this always there's this always this golden age mentality. So the golden age mentality, I would say is never specific to one period. It's, it's a transcendent, you know, universal uh, human experience where, you know, there's always this kind of imagining that somehow the past was better, you know,
0: make America great again. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Bill, you know, there's, this is a huge topic here that we've, only begun to get at here, and I think we're going to have to revisit this about 5,000 more times. There's there's so many layers to, to think about when it comes to when the Bible was written, why it was written. But we're, now, for today, we're coming to the end of our time, so maybe tell us a little bit about any projects you might be working on, or if you have a book that you're working on or that's about to come out.
2: Yeah, so I'm just finishing a book which I'm calling The Finger of the Scribe. And basically what I try to do there is reconstruct early Israelite curriculum, school curriculum. How did how did scribes first learn to write? And what I've discovered is that curriculum is very, very conservative, and it emerged at the end of the Late Bronze Age in the early Iron Age in Israel. So
0: on 1300, 1200, 1300,
2: 12 you know, 13th century, 12th century is when Israelite curriculum you know, the scribes started developing and, and and then it was pretty conservative. And once you sort of reconstruct some of the aspects of that curriculum, you can actually look at the Bible and see how education what the real bonus of this I hope will be that when you can see how they learned how to write and what what they studied in school, you can see how their training influenced their writing of the Bible. They were basically taking their education and they were adapting it, right? So that's what we do. We learn how to read and write, and then we take the things that we learn and we adapt it and implement it into the writing. So it's looking at some of the human aspects of how education influenced the writing of scripture. You know, one of the easy examples that scholars know about, and there are lots and lots more, is just learning to write letters. You know, the very very basic thing that uh, scribes did was they learned to write letters, and of course, letter writing is the foundation of the the genre of prophecy in the uh, in the Bible. So, "Thus says the Lord" is an adaptation of the the genre of letter writing uh, in the hmm. Bible.
0: Yeah. So, is this are you uh, is this a book that you're working on now?
2: This is a book that I've just completed the the draft of. Oh, good. When do you think it will be out? So it should be out next year. And who's it with? It's going to be with Oxford University Press. Cool. You've written with them before. I have. Yes. Good. All right, Bill. Well, listen, it's been great
0: having you here. And like I said, this is just scratching the surface, but maybe we can have a chance to revisit some of these themes in the future.
2: Sounds great. I'd love to come Mm. and talk about the next book.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, Bill. Well, thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks, Bill.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Just wanted to remind everyone, please check out the website, thebiblefornormalpeople.com, where you can find content and, uh, yeah, lots of good stuff going on there. Join the comments section. We It's actually pretty clean. You moderate that pretty well.
0: I do. That's yeah. good.
1: And lots of content. We don't moderate Pete's writing as much. No, we so should.
0: Somebody has to. Who knows where that's I need going adult to
1: supervision. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. See ya.